So I'm a scientist. And I'm not, but I'm curious about science. She asks a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. And it's always fun for me to explain complex science in understandable ways. So So we we made made a a podcast. podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to a new episode of So I Married a Scientist. I'm Corey. And I'm Mel. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. All right. How's your microbiome? My microbiome? Yeah. That's an interesting question. It's very specific, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone's talking about microbiomes these days. It's a very hot topic in all things. I actually just saw a commercial the other day about a skincare product that was claiming that it was very good for the skin microbiome, and it made me wonder how it got into marketing materials now. Just buzzword. Sometimes if you drop sciencey language, people are like, ooh. Apparently, They yeah. must know what they're talking Apparently about. Apparently the microbiome is now impressive. I like I'm, it. I'm going to start dropping it in polite conversation. Yeah, just yeah. throwing out the microbiome. My microbiome's feeling real good today. All right. It sounds weird when you say it like that. What does that. the microbiome feel like? It feels good. Does it? I don't know. What is it? I don't, I don't really know what it is. Yeah, is, we might need to define what it is, first what, of all. Is there a skin microbiome? Is there that is a, real a thing? skin microbiome. Okay. There's also a gut microbiome. That's what. That's the one I normally hear about. It's also called skin and gut flora. Ew. Which is interesting because that's plant life and yeah. I wouldn't necessarily consider bacteria to be plant life. But I just think of like a little tiny jungle in my body. Is that kind of right? Um, I wouldn't necessarily go with that analogy, but sure, you have tons of bacteria all across your skin and all through your gut, and most of them are good, some of them are bad, but the good ones we call the microbiome. So first question, Benny, our dog, is currently licking my arm and won't stop. Does that affect my skin microbiome? It will, in a localized area, yes. (laughs) What about in a... So just a localized area, so like my elbow has a different microbiome than my other elbow? Well, no, but he's introducing new types of bacteria to your skin and potentially removing your skin microbiome, your commensals in that area, and yeah, probably changing it a bit. So does washing your hands change your skin microbiome? It most certainly does. Yeah. Yeah, so washing your hands, antibiotics, chemotherapeutics, these are all things that can definitely change your gut microbiome and skin microbiome as much as other challenges to it. Do other parts of you have a microbiome besides those two things? Like, oh, yeah. Is there so one in your nose? Basically, any interface with the outside world has mm-hmm. a microbiome. Your mouth? Your mouth definitely your has a microbiome. Your eyes? I would say that all of those have microbiomes. Oh, your eyes. I don't like thinking about little tiny things in my eyes. I don't like it. Yeah. Well, Let's change the subject. All right. So what's a microbiome? Let's start there. The microbiome is basically just a collection of bacterial species and some viruses, though it's predominantly bacteria, that live on your skin or live in your gut. And they have some really beneficial qualities. And we can go over the benefits of a good microbiome. But yeah, so they just sit there and maybe provide some digestion and some protection and hang out. They just sit there? Yeah, well, I mean, they're actively doing things, obviously, but they're, you know, present on your skin or in your gut. And yeah, the latest results that I've seen, there are about a thousand different species that Mm -hmm. can live in your body at any given time. And some people think that there are 10 times as many bacteria as your own cells in your actual body. Whoa. But like billions. The range trillions. Trillions. Yeah. Whoa. 
So that's a lot of things. Yeah. So you, you have about 30 trillion human cells in your body. Okay. And then wow. estimates range anywhere from about the same number of bacteria to 10 times that for bacteria. Whenever I think about this kind of thing, you ever seen, you know, the, the very end of Men in Black? If you haven't seen it, this isn't really much of a spoiler. I guess it is I kind of a spoiler. I think we're beyond the point of You're allowed to spoil it if it came out like more than 10 years ago? Okay. You know the very end of Men in Black when like they zoom out. So they're like in the little room or whatever. And then they start zooming out and then zooming out and zooming out. And they get to like, they zoom out of the globe. And then they zoom out of the Milky Way solar system. And they zoom out of the universe. And then you see that that whole thing was a marble that these giant aliens are playing with. Yeah. That's what I think about when I think about microbiome. Okay. Is that kind of right? Well, I mean, like you they got a whole universe own, inside of you. Yeah. They would have their own kind of micro environment and universe going on down there and activities. And yeah. So they're probably not thinking about where they're living. Well, they're probably not thinking, right? Because they they're single cell organisms. Well, no. Yeah. They're, they don't they're have not a brain. sentient. Well, they react to things, but they're not really, yeah, doing they're not, much. They're not making conscious moral decisions. Yeah, they don't have movies. But if they did have a movie, yeah, I doubt they would go back and have a full human in the end credits. A tiny movie. But yeah, Men Aww. in Black was 1997, so I think did we're... Did you just Google that? I did. <laughs> we're beyond the statute of limitations on spoilers, I think. Did you say statue of limitations? Statute. Okay, just checking. Because remember when you busted me for saying kimono dragon? Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I believe I said back. statute. I didn't hear the second T, but we'll let it slide I this time. I know it's statute. <laughs> okay. Okay. So are your skin and gut microbiome similar? Do they have the similar bacterial colonies in them? Well, they're completely different environments. So no. I'm sure there are some species that overlap, but I think most of the time that they're different, like completely different classes. Yeah. You're... Gut is much more anaerobic, so there's not quite as much oxygen availability and <laughs> all that kind of stuff down yeah. there. Um, yeah, and the pH is different, and there's just a lot of differences. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've heard quite a few things about the microbiome, and I just want to run them past you and just see what you think about it and tell me if they're true or not. All right. First thing, someone told me that the microbiome is kind of like a little mini ecosystem and that the bacteria are almost like different species in like a given geographical location and the fact that they like eat each other and compete for resources and kind of try to get along which is why it's like its own little ecosystem is that accurate well i mean there are numerous species which we've mentioned and the environmental components are basically your diet is a large contributor so your gut microbiome will change composition depending on what your diet looks like but yeah, I mean, they're definitely competing for similar resources and space. So one of the key functions of your microbiome is basically to outcompete potential pathogens. So these are commensal bacteria in your gut that occupy real estate. And your immune system is constantly talking to your gut microbes. So they know they're there. They're cool with them sitting there as long as they don't go haywire and go elsewhere in the body. But yeah, so they're really good at growing in that environment and they're trying to keep pathogens away. So they help your body. So your body's like, okay, you guys can chill out because for the most part, you're helping us digest things and yeah. Oh, yeah. in your they large definitely intestine, contribute right? to digestion. They mm -hmm. definitely outcompete the pathogens that could make you sick. And as long as you have a nice, stable microbiome, you're going to be pretty healthy. So it's part—it's kind of part of your immune system, even though these are technically, are they parasites? So they're not considered parasites. They're most commonly called commensals, 
commensals. Yeah, they're colonizing your your gut or your skin and just hanging out. And most of them are mutually beneficial. Some of them don't really contribute much to the digestion process in your gut, but they're occupying real estate and preventing pathogens from getting in. Okay. So you said for the most part they're good. So it is possible to have bad guys move in and like take over. Well, I mean, it's all contextual, right? So if some of these bacteria left the gut and went into your body, you could get sick from them. So because they're in the gut and they're kind of happy there, they are not invading, that's fine. But if you had a large intestine rupture or something, they could definitely cause illness and disease and sepsis if they got out of the large intestine. So because they're contained in like a standalone area, like that's okay. Yeah. So they're not like pathogens that are going to actively try to get out out of the large intestine and go to other cells and, you know, cause an infection, but they are capable of growing, you know, in other areas. And if they left their little micro environment in the large intestine, they could cause some illness. So I was watching TV one time, and clearly this must be a true story because it was on television. Just like you read it on the internet. At yeah. some point, yeah. But there was a story of this guy who was like having all these symptoms of drunkenness, but he hadn't been drinking. Like he was just drunk. But doctors finally figured out what was happening was that he had a yeast overgrowth in his gut that was so strong that the yeast itself started fermenting other foods. So it was like basically alcohol was being made in his belly and making him intoxicated. Sounds plausible. Yeah, right? Yeah. That would be a horrible problem to have. Like you're just walking around someday and all of a sudden you're drunk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the key components and vitamins that you get from your diet actually come from byproducts from your microbiome. They're not from the food because you can't process them yourself, like your own cells and intestinal cells can't process those. They're actually broken down by the bacteria in your gut, and that's what you absorb and use. So So without your microbiome, you wouldn't be able to have access to those key vitamins and nutrients. That's really amazing. And I've heard recently, okay, another another thing that I've heard that I want you to verify. Is it true that your gut microbiome kind of controls your brain in the sense that it will like control your food cravings and your moods to some degree? Like if you have, for example, an overgrowth of bacteria that really love to eat sugar, your gut microbiome could drive a sugar addiction that's kind of like independent of you and your own desires and because you got all those little guys in there going give us sugar (laughs) is that is there anything real to that i think that's more of a theory stage okay i don't know that they've proven that it sounds plausible to me i don't think it's completely ridiculous but i haven't heard of anything definitive Mm, but sugar itself is kind of an addictive molecule in terms of what it does to your overall demeanor. Does it give you, it gives you a dopamine? I mean, it gives you a little bit of a sugar high. That's not yeah completely false. Okay. We could do a whole episode on sugar. So back to gut, the gut. Why is it called, when you say your gut, you're just talking about your large intestine or are you talking about your stomach too? Because your stomach's so acidic that I imagine a lot of bacteria couldn't live in there or it d- does it? Well, I mean, there are certainly some bacterial species that can live in really low acid environments, but most of the time we're talking about the large intestine and downstream digestive tract. Okay. So probiotics, yay or nay? Are they real? Is it a hoax? What's the deal with them? So probiotics are real, but the problem is if you take a bunch of probiotics and your microbiome's already really stable and well-colonized, there's not really anywhere for it to go. So you're not going to be able to actually change much. 
So if, if you just take so like a probiotic supplement every day. So it can't hurt you, it's really. It's probably if, not going to do all that much. But if you've like recently undergone antibiotic treatment or chemotherapeutics that are just going to decimate your gut, then yeah, I mean, a probiotic to kind of recolonize your gut makes a lot of sense. How do they get it through there? Because we just said that the stomach acid, you know, will destroy a lot of good bacteria. Like Yeah, uh, that's why they're in like pills that are capsulized. Yeah. So the capsule is intended to help them survive the, Through the stomach. stomach, but yeah. I, I guess that makes more sense. That's why sense. every time Benny has a Our antibiotic, dog. they give him a probiotic Yeah. afterwards. They don't give people that. I think that more goes to the, the person. thought about how effective it is, but it may not be all that effective in Benny either. We gave the ducks probiotics. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so... I'd love to talk about what all the things that your microbiome does and then what bad things can happen if things go haywire. Sure. So we've mentioned that they contribute to digestion. So some of the good nutrients that you get are directly related to your microbiome. They also protect against pathogens just by outcompeting them for that microenvironment. They are constantly talking to the immune system and forming this immune homeostasis where they're both kind of happy. But there are examples of diseases and other illnesses that are directly caused by the microbiome dysregulation or they call it dysbiosis. So things like Crohn's disease or irritable bowel disease, also things like type 1 diabetes has some unique features of not having as diverse a microbiome as they would expect in a healthy human. They've also seen things like colorectal cancers being associated with dysregulation in your microbiome. Dysregulation meaning like yeah. not diverse enough or not colonized properly? Or? Both, yeah. So okay. any suboptimal changes to your microbiome could potentially be a contributing factor. Man, honestly, like I knew it was kind of important, but I had no idea how important this was to your body. Like, oh, yeah. you really couldn't function without a healthy yeah. microbiome. Because we can't generally digest fibers, but some of the critical healthy nutrients that we get from food are from those dietary fibers that we can't break down. Wait, I thought fiber was just like basically cleaning out your gut. So fiber, you're telling me that the, the good bacteria needs it to eat it? Well, some of the fibers can be broken down by your gut microbiome. Yeah. And then you get other molecules that are actually beneficial. So this is stuff in the fiber that the gut microbiome doesn't digest there, or does digest? There's some of those byproducts. Byproducts. Okay. Wow. And they're always telling you to eat more fiber. It's so weird that humans have developed a digestive system that needs to digest things that we actually, our bodies actually can't fully break down. That's kind of weird to me. Well... Like if you, you can't break it down into energy, but your body still needs it. Yeah. So high fiber foods are not only for kind of those particular nutrients. It's also just to keep things flowing. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the reason that so. I've always heard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how does the gut microbiome talk to the immune system? How does, how do they communicate? They're like different creatures. Yeah. So there are specialized cells in the immune system and we can go more into the immune system in another episode. It's, you know, a pretty fascinating and complex system. But there are specialized cells that recognize bacteria. So they have receptors on their surface that will recognize what are known as pathogen-associated molecular patterns. So these are PAMPs. And all bacterial classes have certain PAMPs. And 
that's kind of how the immune system just keeps a tab on what's in there. There are other ways that they can communicate, but that's the primary one. That's amazing. I'm impressed that you remembered what PAMPS means off the top of your head. Well, when you just spend rat- rattling it off. all those years studying it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Can we talk about fecal research? Sure. So when we were living in Boston, I would ride the T, which is the local name for the train. If you're not a local, the T is what you call it. And one day I just saw all these ads in the T popping up on the walls that said, be a hero, donate your stool to the stool bank. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting day and age we live in. So I understand that some people, for some people, their gut is in such bad shape, their microbiome that probiotics ain't going to do it. They Mm -hmm. need a fecal transplant. Yep. So a stool bank, a stool research bank would serve what purpose? Is it to help people get transplants? Is it for research? Is it for both? Both. Both. So, yeah. So there are fecal transplant therapeutics out there. There are also groups that are trying to develop pills that would basically just completely revamp your gut microbiome just from the pill. It would be like a probiotic on steroids. So basically just to completely repopulate your your gut. And they fall into two categories. Some are to combat actual pathogenic microbes. A good example of this is C. diff. So I don't know if you've heard C. diff, but Mm -mm. Clostridium difficile is a really big pathogen, especially in hospital environments. And it's very difficult to treat once it's established in your gut. C. diff. And it is a pathogenic uh, microorganism. Is it like MRSA or staph? I mean, it's a different class. Okay. But it's pathogenic like those two. And it's common And it's difficult to treat. And the challenge is it's very prominent after high dose antibiotics or chemotherapeutics. So it just comes out in force and it's like, I'm taking over. Right. So if you're exposed to it, when you have a gut microbiome that's been depleted by antibiotics or chemotherapeutics, then you're very susceptible to getting a really bad infection of it. Mm. And so one of the potential treatments is a complete fecal transplant. So they take, so how do they do that? They take a healthy person's stool. Yeah, they take stool from a healthy person that has a good composition of microbiome Mm -hmm. and they go in and they use antibiotics to deplete as much of the existing microbiome so they wipe as out, they can. They wipe out your existing. So it's very similar to like a bone marrow transplant. Whoa. Where in order to replace it effectively, you have to wipe out as much of it as you can. I didn't know that part. And then you put in the new healthy fecal material and then it comes back. That's, that's amazing. And it works? Fecal transplants work? Yeah. The initial research coming out of it and the prognosis from the people who've had it has been good so far. Okay. That's awesome. I mean, it's really cool that we can help people like that. You know, it seems like such a, it's, it's like a lot less invasive, right? Then it, yeah. it's not pleasant, but it's a lot less invasive than like a bone marrow or like a organ transplant and probably a lot less likely for your body to reject it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's all isolated. And because that immune system has the, you know, nice little crossover homeostasis that it establishes, it doesn't freak out when it's isolated to the gut. The the immune system does not. It, it you know, as part. long as you're, you know, not in an IBD or Crohn's situation, yeah. um, you know, generally things go pretty well. That's really cool. So the stool 
bank is also used for research, you said. So what kinds of research are they doing right now? Yeah, so they're actually... That's like a hot topic, A lot right? of really cool um, research elements. So one of the studies that I've seen recently was actually looking at obese mice versus thin mice and how their gut microbiome contributes to how much weight they put on. And what they found is that obese mice tend to have much less diverse microbiome. So they have gut flora that don't have as many species, and they have an upregulation in enzymes that make them ridiculously efficient at processing and digesting material. So huh. part of the reason why they're obese, you know, they could eat the same amount of food as the lean mice, but they're going to process it so much more efficiently that they're going to gain weight versus the lean mouse, which is not very good at Processing, processing the same amount of food Whoa. so they're going to get fewer calories from the same amount of food effectively because specifically because of their gut specifically bacteria. because the gut microbiome and the enzymes in their gut are just that much better at processing the material so that it can be absorbed oh my goodness so, so they have done fecal transplants between the lean mice and the obese mice and then it's one of the ways that the obese mice can lose weight no kidding by getting the microbiome from a mouse that doesn't process dietary food nearly as efficiently. So in the future, if humans need to lose weight for health reasons, could fecal transplants be a possibility for helping them do that? Yeah, I think that's the hypothesis that yeah. these researchers are going for. Yeah, so I think part of what this research does is identifies the fact that two people eating the exact same diet could have very different outcomes in terms of weight and the ability to lose weight. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, that we've talked about genetic factors and all that kind of stuff in terms of weight and obesity, but it could also be the microbiome contributing as well. There's a lot of like shame and emotional stuff around obesity and weight gain and everything. And I think it's really cool to have a body positivity movement happening right now. But I think knowing things like that, that there are just so many factors contributing to someone's size and shape that yeah. maybe are beyond their control. Um and so we got to look at all these things to be as healthy as we can, no matter what shape and size we are. Yeah. Right. That's cool. I mean, that that's really, that's a neat thing to think about. So how do we keep a healthy microbiome, no matter who we are? Like you said diversity of, of bacteria. So does it also mean diversity of food? And like what happens if you only like eating a, a small amount of types of foods? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult because, you know, we can't really say, hey, I need more of X species of bacteria. I'm going to eat this food and get more of those. We don't really we know. Can't do that. We can't fine tune it to that level as far as I can understand. Can we someday, do you think? Like get a screening of your fecal matter and I mean, then like if they'll these, tell you what you need to eat more of? Yeah, I mean, if these poop pill things work out and you could just kind of take a pill to replenish a certain species of bacteria that's identified as being low in your microbiome and it's important then yeah i guess you could I would do theoretically that. do that yeah you know part of that is going to depend on how good our identification methods are so one of the ways that you can assess the composition of microbiome in your gut is to do what's known as 16s rrna sequencing so 16S ribosomal RNA is very specific to prokaryotes. I literally thought you were just speaking a different language. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I, I did not comprehend like 90% of the words okay. you just said. So, so you got to break that down for me. We have me. ribosomes. <laughs> what? Oh, those yeah. We, we've talked about those. They make proteins. They make and they're cells. Yep. And they come okay. in two subunits. Okay. And 
humans and bacteria have different subunits of ribosomes. Okay. So one of the ways that you can identify different species of bacteria from your stool is by sequencing the 16S ribosomal RNA from your stool, which is going to be exclusive to bacteria. And that will tell you what species of bacteria are in your gut. How do they do that? What is it? So is a ribosome a cell or a part of a cell? A ribosome is a protein within a cell. Within a cell. So they look inside the little tiny cell of the bacteria in your gut. Yep. And they look for this one specific little thing. Well, yeah. So you can take the stool Uh and within that stool, there's going to be a ton of bacterial cells, right? Yeah. And then you can process that down to where you've isolated the 16S ribosomal RNA. How do you find that? It's like a needle in a haystack. Well, no. It's a needle in a poop stack. That's... (laughs) Not at all true. Um, <laughs> you, there are <laughs> extraction methods to isolate it very specifically. How? That's a lot of complex lab mumbo jumbo. Give me a, like a. Do they put it in a thing and spin it really fast? Do they like take so a little eyedropper? Some centrifugation. They put it stuff involves in there. A lot of different chemicals. chemicals. Okay. Different pHs. Okay. A lot of different things, and then you get it out. And wow. Then you put it on a machine and it sequences it, and then you know which species are most prominent in your stool. That is just wizardry. Yeah, so you've heard of the Human Genome Project. Uh, that was a project that was started in the early 1990s, I believe, and it took about 13 years and about $3 billion to sequence the first human genome. And that involved just kind of reading base by base. What's a base? Yeah, so there are four bases in DNA, and they go in a different sequence to encode different genes. And it's basically like the binary code equivalent for cells. Oh, okay. That makes sense to me. Binary code zeros and ones, like what computers were designed on. Yeah, except in this case, it's It's four bases, A, T, C, and G, and they just go in a sequence. So this project... Like, they knew what DNA was, but they didn't know what, what it did, like, specifically what what gene did what. And so they, they started mapping that out, right? Is that what well, that Well, they knew what DNA was. They knew yeah. some genes, and but they wanted to know the whole sequence. So they took it upon themselves to make the first fully sequenced human genome. So you said it started 2000 and then It started in year. 1990. 1990. It completed in 2003. So we did it. We, we mapped the human we genome. It. That's and, so cool. Yeah. So they did it for $3 billion. And Chump change. the technology has gotten so much better since then. So this involved 20 laboratories, 13 years, basically sequencers that were running constantly. And now you have test kits that you can buy for like $100 and get a pretty complete sequence of your own genome. Whoa. In like 20 days. But you have to know what to do with that information. Right? Well, that's what these 23andMe programs are. Oh. You basically just take a swab, send it out, and then you get your genome back. It's not completely complete for certain reasons, but... But they're just dealing with, like, ethnicity stuff, right? Like, in that? They don't tell you, like, I think some of them. markers for diseases. and. But then someone else has your genetic material. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I would definitely not do it. Yeah. But... I mean, I mean some, but some people really want to find out where they came from, and I get that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. at this point, they probably have enough genetic information to map everybody. Hmm. But that's 
Yeah. Neither here nor there. Wait, so why did we start talking about the genome? Oh, because they find, so they find the, the, the RNA, the SSRNA in the Yeah, so gut. what we're talking about with the Human Genome Project is yeah. DNA. Yeah. Um, but it's a similar sequencing process. For? For the ribosomal RNA okay. from the bacteria. Okay. And they have since done a similar project dedicated to the human microbiome. I think they called it the Human Microbiome Project. <laughs> Straightforward. Yeah. That's cool. So they're trying to sequence the human microbiome. So all those different... So how many different types of bacteria are in an average person's microbiome? Yeah, so it's about a thousand species. Species. Okay, so they, if they map a thousand species, their DNA or RNA, then they kind of have a good idea of like what should be in there for a healthy human. Yeah. But wow. see, the challenge and the reason why they had to do this RNA-specific analysis is because a lot of the gut microbes can't be cultured on a dish. Because it needs to live in your gut Because it needs to be in a very anaerobic environment. And a nasty there are several <laughs> species of these things that we just can't grow. So we can't study them because we can't grow them. But we can sequence their 16S RNA subunit and then... We can figure out that they are there. We just can't do much we beyond can't grow that. Them. Is that because labs are sterile environments and like these bacteria need literally an unsterile environment? It more has to do with their living conditions in the microenvironment in terms of like pH and anaerobic conditions, so no oxygen. So you'd have to put them in a vacuum. Nutrients and that kind of stuff that we yeah. just can't supply in the, the laboratory. Interesting. Now, you asked about could we do a poop pill kind of thing and just restore it. In order to develop those, we would have to figure out a way to culture these bacteria. So right or now we farm can, it. or transplant it over Whoa. from someone else. Yeah. So currently, we can only make those pills with bacteria that we can actively grow. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, probiotics are getting in everything these days. Like we bought tea that's like probiotic tea. Yeah, like most of it's that you drink. I would think like, cause you take nice, healthy probiotics if they, if they are alive in that tea bag, some magical way. Uh, and then you put them in boiling hot water. It doesn't seem like that's a similar environment to a human body. So first you dry them out and then you put them in boiling hot water. Like that can't be a thing, right? You're learning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some foods like yogurt that has lactobacillus in it. That's a legitimate probiotic. But the yogurt has to have active cultures. It has to stay yeah. on the label. It has active cultures right. in order to be. And a lot of those sugary yogurts that you buy with strawberries or peaches or whatever, a lot of them do not have active cultures. They actually just have tons of sugar, like right. two tablespoons of sugar per one little cup of yogurt. So. They also still need to be alive. So your point about heating them up and drying them out and all that kind of stuff, they can survive in yogurt. I'm not convinced they can survive in other contexts. But so what about, they can, don't they pasteurize yogurt though? They heat yogurt up. Yeah, but there's still, that's why there's a difference between active culture and non-active culture. Yeah, so if they're active, if they say active culture, then it's good for your gut bacteria. What I do is I take Greek yogurt that has active culture, the plain stuff, so I know it doesn't have sugar, and I'll just add a little bit of honey to make it taste good. There you go. Yeah. So I want to talk about more about foods that are good for your microbiome because I'm really fascinated by that. But sure. before we get there, can you also tell me about just any more cool research with microbiome stuff that's coming out? Because I know that's, I've heard a few scientists now talk about how it's really popular right now to study the microbiome in yeah. science. So the more we learn about microbiome, the more we kind of apply it to basically every 
possible disease. So people in the cancer field are studying it. People in cardiovascular research are studying it. People studying multiple sclerosis or, you know, any of those kind of high profile diseases, diabetes, all of these things are kind of considered to be potential contributing factors. Yeah. So I think everyone's looking into it these days. I just don't know what the likelihood that they'll find anything particular for each of those research categories. So when you say potential contributing factors, you mean like they think that there could be a link between things like cancer and your gut microbiome or between MS and your gut microbiome. Diabetes. Diabetes. There was another one you said. Cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So they don't know for sure yet or they do know for sure and they're trying to figure it out that there's links between I think it's going to vary disease to disease, but I mean, if there are some nutrients that are very important and you don't have those bacteria to generate those nutrients, then, you know, there's short chain fatty acids that come from dietary fibers, I think are pretty convincingly related to cardiovascular disease, but I don't know if the actual mechanism for that has been well established. Okay. So we don't want to scare anybody to think that like your gut microbiome determines your entire health or is linked to any disease you could possibly get, right? Like that's that's not... 20 years ago, this wasn't even a thing. I don't think they would have expected even obesity to be related to your gut flora. So the more that we study it, the more we realize that it's important. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing that even in our lifetime, we've learned so much about something that wasn't even on anyone's radar, like pretty recently. Yeah. Science develops very quickly. That's amazing. This has been so interesting. I've really enjoyed this episode. I enjoy all of our episodes, but this one has been a lot of questions that have been in my mind for a while. So it's very cool to get everything cleared up. So last question, besides yogurt with active cultures, what other kinds of stuff can people eat or not eat to keep their gut as healthy as possible? Yeah. So, you know, in addition to just eating a generally healthy diet with a lot of fibers and good vegetables and those types of things, I think one of the key components is to eat less sugar. So it's one of the primary contributors to gut dysbiosis. You know, some microbes are just very sugar-friendly. The microbes that are not good for you are sugar-friendly? It depends. So it just changes the the environment. So, you know, there are metabolic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and all that kind of stuff that are directly related. And then a lot of the other ones can just be tangentially related or just related in other ways. Um, But there's a lot of talk these days about the Western diet being like high sugar, high salt, and how that's Mm -hmm. really negatively impacting the gut microbiome compared to other cultures. Wow. So like your good old like hamburgers and hash browns and French fries and French fries and bacon. Potato chips and all that kind of stuff. All the stuff that tastes the best. Yeah, but not so good for your (laughs) your gut. There's also been a lot of studies related to stress in the microbiome. Really? Yeah. So, you know, things like psychological stress or environmental stressors. Um, they can change the composition of the gut microbiome. How? Undetermined. But they think that but they they think, they that think they a, see a before and after. They see a negative impact on gut health if with stress. they track with stress. Whoa, that's that's wild. Yeah, it's also really important not to abuse antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are certain cases we mentioned that antibiotics do nothing against viruses. So taking antibiotics for every illness is not appropriate. Yeah, because... So you promote... You, you wipe anti- out the bad bacteria that you're trying to kill. And the good ones. And you kill the good stuff. Yeah. Because they so all live together. Antibiotics are not going to be able to discriminate between the bad one flowing through your blood and the good ones in your gut. 
So that's why a lot of people have tummy problems after they take antibiotics. But right. it seems like that's especially important for kids, right? Not to take antibiotics unless it's super necessary. Um, I think it's anybody because, like, really. It seems like to me, common sense would say it's extremely important early in your life to establish and colonize your gut in a good way, right? I think it's too transient for it to matter. It changes. It changes. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's but just yeah. important for anyone. At any uh, age. Yeah, so for the antibiotics piece, the most recent research had something like 30% of the time antibiotics are prescribed inappropriately. So you're just taking these antibiotics and inducing your microbiome without much positive benefit. So just because your doctor gives it to you... Well, I mean, if your doctor prescribes it, you should take it, but... Yeah, and take the whole I think, thing. I think if you're just generally ill, you can definitely question why you're getting an antibiotic if there's not a definitive bacteria that they're targeting. Okay. Sometimes they just say, oh, you're sick. We're going to give you an antibiotic when... You might have the flu and it won't help you anyway. Yeah, you may not have a bacterial infection. Because I know from our earlier episode that yeah. the flu is a virus and antibiotics do not work. Well, okay, so eat your fruits and vegetables, get your fiber in your diet, cut back on sugars, and get your yogurt and keep your stress levels down if you can. They've also linked it to things like sleep cycles and what kinds of cleaning products you use. So these are testy I mean, little buggers. There are like, tons of different things they, that could contribute. They're very. It seems like they're very like particular. Yeah. yeah like, so I cannot I think work it, in these conditions. Yeah. So I think it both <laughs> highlights the fact that there are tons of potential contributors, and also the fact that we still have a lot of research to do to kind of fine tune the guidance related to gut microbes. That's so cool. Thank you so much, Corey. Sure. This has been fascinating. Hope it was helpful. Yeah. If you have any other questions about the gut microbiome, you can email us at soimeritascientist at gmail.com. You can send us a message through our website, soimeritascientist.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And most importantly, if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate it. It helps other people find us who might also be interested in learning about science in a fun way. So thank you so much, guys. And we hope you have a great day. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. Music by Lemonfest. Logo and marketing by Cambridge Creative Group. Edited and produced by Corey and Mel. See you next time. <laughs>